Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, you guys. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. Hello, longtime listener, first-time caller. My name is Mandy, and today I'll be stepping in for the lovely Keisha as your moderator for today's discussion. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing within your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everyone in advance for not using this time uh, for airing policy uh, grievances or industry <laughs> for airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroyo pricing, though you are always welcome to book a demo. Please do feel free to type any of your questions into the chat at any time, and if your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Anyone who asks their question live for the first time today will get an Arroyo hat, limited to U.S. residents only, and one hat per household. And today, we're actually going to uh, raffle off one of our limited edition Arroyo t-shirts. To enter, everyone on today's live broadcast should post your email address in the chat. Seth, Phil, how are you guys today? Good. Good. We're awesome. glad to be here. How are you? Oh, so excited. Uh, this is a big dream of mine to be on the show. So just <laughs> soaking it all up. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I see that we're getting some more attendees. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, without further ado, are you guys ready for our first question? Of course. Yeah. Awesome. So we have a lot of questions that came in through Instagram this week, and uh, we'll just go jump right into some of the crop steering questions. Sure. Dumpflex uh, wrote in, what is the best way for a beginner to understand and learn about crop steering? Uh, to be honest, start reading. Look at books like Plant Empowerment. Go out, look at things like the Groden White Papers. And, you know, don't limit yourself, honestly, to just the cannabis sphere. Go learn about plant science. I mean, there's uh, that's, that's kind of how our company got involved in this, is realizing there's opportunity here. Yeah, I was just about yeah. to say, I mean, crop steering isn't cannabis specific. So I would totally do that, too. I mean, look at just start Googling crop steering and see what people have done in the industry. I mean, in, yeah. in, in, in the Netherlands, I think they've been using crop steering for decades. Oh, absolutely. And, and we do, you know, in any irrigated crop anywhere that someone's trying to grow and make money off of is crop steering to some extent. So, yeah, basically just start looking. And, you know, a lot of the responses we're looking at here that involve, you know, plant physiology are pretty universal rules. They apply to most annual herbaceous plants. So, um, yeah, just start reading. That's the best you can do and learn as much about plant physiology as you can. It's going to make so much more sense if you understand what's going on. Yeah, in totally. The plant. And, and I mean, don't be scared off from it either, because it's important to understand what crop steering really is. I mean, crop steering is something that everyone is doing, even if you're doing it or not, if you know what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's, it's basically how do you steer your crop? How do you grow your crops? Like, anything that you do is essentially crop steering. So you might as well do it on purpose. Yep, exactly. And yeah, don't, don't be scared of it. Everyone, uh, that alfalfa field you drove by earlier today with a pivot irrigator, they're crop steering. It's, right. uh, you know, someone who puts an automatic sprinkler setup in their garden, they're also crop steering. It's, it's maybe, uh, maybe we've made the word a little too big. <laughs> the term scary. Yeah. There's yeah, actually another like term for it. We're going to get onto the next question, but they're not a term for it. Uh, what is that called? Um, phasic steering, mm -hmm. phasic environmental steering. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yeah. Kind of going back to the basics, right? Mm -hmm. 
and that's something that we're always here for too. Um, we always have educational resources. That's something that we're really um, committed to um, always presenting uh, for growers. So um, yeah, always check out our website, arroya.io for that. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of questions, so I'm gonna keep us moving. Awesome, so Cross for object, Objective uh, wrote in, is EC affected differently in organic soil? Yes, because <clears throat> you're not applying salt fertilizers, so you don't have direct control over what's going on. And in organic setups, your EC is actually directly influenced by what's going on around the roots themselves. So when we've got a complex biological system like that, our actual EC that's affecting the plant is that, you know, it's within millimeters of each, each root surface. So, yes, it, it is going to be a totally different setup. That, that, that's not to say, though, that using, um, you know, EC monitoring equipment in your soil isn't still a good measure of how much available nutrients we have. It's just the processes by which we would amend those or change it are going to be totally different. <clears throat> you know, when we, when we can't just dump on a liquid fertilizer and make what we want happen. Mm. It's, you know, we're, we're planning things a month ahead of time, two months ahead of time. So we're adding amendments that are going to break down over time and give us the nutrients we want at the right time. Hmm. Beautifully said. Oh, do we have a question in here? Oh, it looks like we do. Um, Kyle, do you want to take yourself off mute and ask? Or I can ask for you too. Oh, okay, I got you. So uh, this is Kyle from Red Barn. Nice to see you guys. Uh, I have a question about veg to bloom transition. Should I be matching uh, veg room light intensity, temperature, and VPD during the transition phase of bloom, then gradually increasing light intensity and adjusting temp and VPD in the same way? I'm slowly building my EC when I switch to generative. I feel like this is one of the areas I don't have nailed down as well as I'd like to, and my plants are showing signs of stress when I'm flipping now. Thank you. Uh, well, the first thing um, I'll address there, I guess, is, uh, in, you know, some of the other environmental factors there. So humidity, we're going to be very similar, rolling out a veg right into flower. We're going to want to keep it around that 1.0 VPD. Mm. High heat, you know, 80 to 82. And then uh, EC, we're going to slowly start stacking that up during generative. But it's important to make sure we build enough in veg because you don't want to come in deficient. Your plants are going to use a lot of nutrients while they're stretching and then again while they're bulking. So if we start out too low, we get in a cycle of trying to catch up all the time. Right. And basically that's, you know, it's wasteful on, on the waterfront because <laughs> we're doing all these extra irrigations that we don't want to have to do. And then also chasing our tail because we always, in a hydroponic system like this, have to have some runoff, right? We've got positive and negative ions. The plants taking up those negative ions or cations we've still got to flush some of those positive ions out of the soil mm. before they become, you know, essentially acidic. It's right. going to drag that pH down and then limit nutrient availability to the rest of the plant. So that's very important. And then, you know, the last one to consider there, and it's the first one you touched on was light. So coming out of veg, we actually want to match our DLI, which is the total number of photons that that plant receives while the lights are on. And we're going to compensate by going in, actually, we're going to have a higher intensity going into flower. But what we want to do is make sure, so usually just some round numbers, 550 in veg coming in at 950 to 1000 in flower. But we want to match those to the total num amount of light energy input in a given day. That so, way the plant's built up. So question on that. So would you yeah. transition over from, from 550 to 900, like the day of transition, or is it a gradual increase? Um, if your plants are hardened off well, you can do that the day of transition. 
Okay. How would you determine if they're hardened off well? <laughs> How they respond. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So um, having a, you know, a one to three day period of, you know, bringing up your light intensity is also not bad insurance if you're worried about it. But that's what I've heard uh, that people do if they don't necessarily know if the plants can take it mm -hmm. is just to be on the safe side that they have been wrapping it up over a few days, maybe three or four days, but actually not, not much more than that though. Yep. to get up to that to that higher in, uh, intensity. Exactly. I mean, when we talk about a flowering cycle, we're looking at, you know, 56 to 65 days generally. Mm -hmm. Each day is greater than 1% of that plant's life, and that's a pretty big portion of the uh, total time we have to be productive in. So one day loss of growth is, or one day where we can't be putting the maximum amount of inputs we want to into the plant is lost grams at the end of harvest. Right, right. And to speak to those other um, parameters, uh, I mean, there's nine cardinal parameters that we talk about, and you touched on a few of those, like temp and BPD as well. Anytime you change anything, like light, everything else is going to be affected to some extent. So if you're, like just as you said in the beginning, you change your irrigation schedule, you change how you stress the crop, ultimately you have to look at all of those other ones. So just keep track of, of, of all your parameters as you're changing. Exactly. And, you know, um, a big part of it, honestly, light is one of our most expensive inputs because of power, right? I mean, it depends on where you are, but yep. in, indoors, it's a huge cost, not just in equipment, but daily operation. Um, we want to really be maximizing those lights and, you know, we're, we're really optimizing the rest of our environment to take advantage of that energy input. That's why, you know, something we're looking at in the future, and I know you'll expand on this a little bit, Phil, is looking at, you know, grams per mole of light that we're putting into the environment. Right, right. And we can talk more about this. But I mean, as you transition and as you increase your light intensity, what a lot of growers will do is that they look at how much waters am I putting out? Like, what am I dimmer set to, if you will? That's great. And that's something you could do. But what I would recommend doing is actually measure the amount of light, like put a quantum sensor, put a put it, you know, like what we offer is, is just the Aquagy quantum sensor, a sensor that you have at the top of the canopy to actually measure how much light am I getting? That way you can for sure know what are the uh, what is the light that the plants are receiving in veg, typically in a different bedroom, and then you can co directly convert that into what should I be doing in flower, more so than just tuning the light in it with, with a dimmer switch. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing to consider, too, when we have our lights, every time we double distance away from the light, we have a quarter of the amount of energy available. Mm -hmm. So really dialing in that light height and light map in the room is mm -hmm. actually a lot more important than a lot of people are considering. Uh, I've noticed out there, you know, it, it's really easy to have a 12-foot ceiling, strap the lights way up there and not have to worry about it. But if you're not light mapping and adjusting those lights for your crop, you're, you're leaving grams on the table. I do have to ask, what do you mean with light mapping? So basically, you're going to go around and map, you know, as many points as you possibly can in spot that room. Measurements, but, like yep, spot exactly measurements yeah. at the exact same height in a grid in the room and try to figure out, all right, we have so much square footage with 1,000 PPFD. We have so much square footage with 800, and we can start to calculate how efficient can we be and then look at, okay, can we add lights in a certain spot? Can we move lights? Right. You know, what can we do to really optimize what we have? Because that's, again, you know, one of our most important inputs and in what we're optimizing everything else around, even, mm. even as far as CO2. If we can supplement CO2, we can start pushing it up. You know, with 1,200 PPM CO2, we can push 1,200 PPFD that's more grams out of the same plant which is needed i mean if you're going yeah. to push up your light intensity if you're not supplementing with co2 we i think we've shown a graph on that or we can show that uh, next episode or something else but if you're upping your lights and you're upping your light intensity from 800 to 1200 yep. you're not enriching with co2 that will be your limiting factor in terms of how much transpiration you can get 
Yep, absolutely. You know, and uh, yeah, light is the basis for pretty much all of this. We adjust everything around that, including EC. You know, when we start running 1200 plus PPFD, we can push a higher EC. Right. And, you know, everything kind of follows along with that. So really going forward, it's a good way to quantify everything we're doing in the farm and even down to our yields because that's our biggest cost. We could talk about grams per gallon of water. We could talk about grams per square foot, grams per light fixture. But in the end, light is that one super constant thing that we all have to pay for. Exactly. Great. Um, Kyle, did that answer your question? Yeah, you thank do, you guys. Thank awesome. you guys so much. That, that that went way deeper than I thought, and I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. <laughs> we, we can always go deeper. Just uh, hit us I'm up like holding that. back. Like I want to spend <laughs> half an hour talking about light because light is so important. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> hey, who knows? We might have another question about it. So there you go. who knows? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kyle. All right. We do have some more questions that came in through Instagram, so I'm going to keep us going. Um, so baby got drybacks. Uh, she wrote in, can you talk about the DLI sensor and how it works and some success you've seen from growers using it? Look at that. See, there you go. Now I get my chance. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, as we just talked about, we have, um, if you're using a Roya, we have multiple, multiple ways of communicating light. Basically, we have what we call a light indicator. Um, our PV panels on the noses or on the climate stations. Those are really um, meant to charge the units to through solar power, make sure that those batteries are, are keep, uh, get um keep charge but they also communicate light and um, those are really meant to give an idea whether or not the lights are on or off but then we have the quantum sensors the apogee quantum sensors that we sell with the Roya system now those are sold with an arm so you can keep those sensors right at the top of the canopy and measure your light intensity your micromoles per square meter per, per second now the DLI uh, the daily, daily light integral comes from those sensors. So we collect the amount of micromoles, the amount of photons that the plants are receiving at the top of the canopy per second. And then DLI is just um, accumulating those or, or adding all of those measurements together. And then you get a total mole per day or mole per square meter per day. Um, basically how much light energy did my square meter get throughout that day? And that's your DLI. So if you can think of uh, bright sunlight, midsummer, Arizona, you're getting, what, 60, something like that, 60 yep. DLI. That's what that was. That's what that looks like. An average grow where you rock maybe a thousand micromole per square meter per second. If you if you um, if you do the math, I think that will even out to about 30, uh, something like that. Most Mid per day. 30s. Yeah. Mid thirties and thirty to forty is where we want to shoot in these indoor environments. That's what seems to be manageable for the most part. Right. So that is that is the daylight measurement. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. All right, we're moving down our list. Bisco Paul wrote in a couple questions for us this week. When measuring runoff volume, is that the percentage of input or percentage of media? So we're looking at the percentage of your input coming in. So if I knew I put 500 milliliters on over, you know, a certain period of time throughout my P1s and I get 100 milliliters running off, mm -hmm. that's 20% runoff. We're looking at the percent of irrigation volume that's coming out of the pot. Short and sweet. I love those. Okay. Bisco Paul also wrote in another question. Can you dive deeper into runoff pH? Does runoff pH tell us what to do with EC? 
So runoff pH is an indicator of what your plants are eating and what they aren't. You know, if we if we got EC going down, that means that can't that plant's pulling cations out of the solution. So we have a higher concentration of positively charged ions and hydrogen ions in solution, which is pH being the negative log of positive ions in solution. We change that balance. pH goes down while the positive concentration of ions goes up or concentration of positive ions goes up. So what you're looking at is a slight drop in pH to indicate that your plant's feeding, but you want to make sure that you're flushing out and flushing is a bad word. I know, <laughs> but pushing out some of those positive ions. So you maintain that balance. Once our, you know, solution pH goes too low, things like nitrogen um, and a lot of micros for that matter, aren't being, aren't very efficiently uptaken by the plant. That's the big thing. pH effects, you know, moving from 5.8 to 5.4, Mm. It's not going to physically burn the plant. If you stick your finger in a water in a cup of water with 5.0 pH, you're not going to get burnt, and neither is the plant. But that plant won't be able to pull any nutrients out of that water. So you know, a lot of the classic signs of pH burn that we see are at, you know just basically nitrogen deficiencies, and then some other micro deficiencies. Um, typically, looking at runoff, traditionally we would adjust feed inputs to try to work with that. But now mm. that we have you know a 24 seven monitoring in the root zone, we can use runoff to uh, monitor, you know, pH and modulate it along with EC. So when you have a, a new um, nitrogen deficiency, mm -hmm. would the runoff pH be higher or lower? Uh, sometimes it could be lower because that plant is eating through so much of that nitrogen that uh, gotcha. it's actually lowering the pH and then it's becoming a, a essentially a self-limiting factor. Gotcha. So it kind of gives you a hint of what, what the plant is eating. Yeah. And then, you know, um, based on runoff pH and EC, I wouldn't necessarily go about making huge fertilizer changes. Mm -hmm. Personally, I like to base those on plant tissue analysis. So gotcha. plant tissue analysis. And then if you have access to any kind of runoff analysis, you can see what the plant is holding on to, what it's having trouble uptaking. And then based off of runoff solution, we can kind of see, okay, we've got a really high positive co or concentration of these ions in there. Clearly we're over supplementing that in our feed schedule. Maybe we can drop that, save money, solve some problems. I mean, obviously when you're irrigating and when you're feeding the plant in a certain phase of growth, you're not really changing your irrigation schedule from a daily basis. Once you've tuned it in, right? Maybe. I mean, that's where, that's where growers are going to always have a job. To be honest, it's going to take a long time for AI to catch up with the guy that gets up at five in the All morning right. and checks his phone every single hour and goes, oh, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it. Fair enough. Absolutely. <laughs> um, does the frequency with which you measure runoff change throughout the phase of growth? Like do you do it more in the beginning? Uh, no, daily? daily. That should be part of your daily routine okay. going in there. You want to get for every strain that you have in that room, you want to get runoff and see what they're doing because that's going to tell us, like I said, you know, when, when we look at a plant and we see a deficiency or something, that is one of the first things we'll look at. Okay. Is it eating? Is it not? If the pH is actually going up, yep. that's a whole different problem. That plant's not uptaking nutrients. That's a deficiency for a different reason. Right. And then we would use some of that tissue analysis to say, okay, we've got a calcium deficiency. That's yep. got an antagonistic relationship with other nutrients. So because I'm seeing calcium, I'm likely seeing a nitrogen deficiency. And then it's, it's a pretty deep, deep dive we can go into on that, right. especially without like a specific example to dissect. Right. Okay. And, uh, and then just logging those in a row as manual readings. Yep. 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 And, you know, as a grower, a lot of you have been doing this every day for years. It's just been written down in a notebook or a binder. Yep. And I know for me, um, I'm never going to sit down and 
put all those notebooks into a, a spreadsheet. So it's way better to use Arroyo on my phone and just put it in and it skips that data entry step. And then I actually have those digital analytics to look at rather than saying, okay, every few months I'm going to sit down and spend a week yeah. doing data entry and making I mean, that's and I stuff, mean, that's the know? beauty of the system. I mean, just yeah. being able to go in and look, hey, what was my, what was my runoff left past 14 days? And you see that go up and down. You know. Oh, yeah. T- ten years ago, doing agronomy research, literally I'd spend weeks in the fall yeah. building the kind of graph that Arroyo gives you in real time. You know, it's a game changer. Awesome. It sounds like we need to do a, a session where we go really deep into pH, where we just really focus on that because there's a lot to talk about. But, uh, but yeah, that was great, you guys. Um, so we do have um, a couple of people who did join the chat, and uh, we do have a new question from Instagram, so I'm going to save that one. Uh, Bill, Bill O'Baggins, I'm going to go ahead and ask yours. That was, that was next on my list anyway. Um, so I did summarize your question a little bit, um, so please tell me if you do want to go a little bit more in-depth with it. Um, but I, so Bill O'Baggins wrote in, I want uh, to encourage more dryback. What's an ideal VPD for the dark photo period? Typically, we want to maintain a consistent VPD day and night, ideally. So, And there's a few reasons for that. Number one is pathogens late in flower. So if we've got botrytis or powdery mildew, when we lower the temperature at night, we've got to make sure that we pull down humidity and maintain VPD because mm-hmm. we can have some, some infestation issues. That's, that's not good. We don't want mold or powdery mildew on our weed. Right. Um, the other thing is to encourage that overnight dryback, we still want to keep it up in that higher VPD range because that's going to keep the stomata on the plant open and help encourage that dry, the water to actually go through the plant. You know, the goal is at night, that's when our carbohydrate exchange is happening. We're moving products up from the roots and down from the leaves. They're making that exchange. So we need water movement in the plant. And if your VPD bottoms out when your lights go off, so does your dryback line essentially. And really, you know, that dryback line, I always want to stress this, that's kind of a culmination of all your environmental factors. Mm. There is no one correct number or two correct numbers or any super correct number for your dryback. What we're looking at is a result of how well you've dialed it. You've dialed that environment for your plant and your pot size. Right, right. And also um, the consistency so- throughout, throughout the, um, the entire zone. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing to remember, you know, plants don't like big changes. That's why we want to keep that VPD consistent. Right. I always have to like really like, what do you call it in English? Cross my tongue. I don't know but basically every time we talk about VPD, I'm like, uh, okay, how does it work? But basically nighttime lights go off, temperature decreases. Exactly. Which means that the relative humidity will up. Exactly. Which means that your VPD will go down. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I know this stuff. I've gone through this a hundred times. So basically what you want to do to maintain the VPD is lowering your RH. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, for a lot of cannabis growers, just because we're are still a pretty new industry and a lot of, uh, a lot of the HVAC companies and stuff out there are still trying to figure out the best way to deal with it. A lot of us run into a wall where we're having trouble controlling that humidity. So sometimes, you know, one of the things to look at is uh, everyone wants to get that purple going right now. Right. Well, you know, at the at the cost of, say, throwing away 20 percent of your crop to get that extra five degrees colder at night mm. to try to make that extra purple come out. Is that really worth it? That's that's something to think about. But yeah. a lot of times, you know, I haven't seen a lot of price increases. And it, obviously, this depends on your situation. But getting enough of a premium on that bud just for the color 
compare, you know, pay off throwing away 20% and having yeah. all the extra labor of dealing with moldy product and sorting through it. Um, it's just something you really got to think about. What do you think about the temperature? I have a follow-up question on this because, I mean, mm -hmm. at, at night, obviously, your temperature will go down. I mean, the lights go off. If you're using HPS lights, you're, you're inevitably going to drop in temperature during flower. I mean, I've seen 10 degrees drops, mm -hmm. 15 degrees drops at times, which, which, um, which is less common. But what do you typically see or what would you do in your grow in terms I, of temperature difference in a flower? I like running, you know, a, an 8 to 10 degree throughout bulking, okay. you know, not quite as much at the beginning and opening it up and then a 10 degree max during ripening really, because in bulking and ripening, we want to ride that line. Like if we're, if it's cold all night, we're slowing down plant metabolism, getting less of that bulking effect. So yeah. we want to keep the temperature up enough to encourage good plant growth, mm. but down enough to ripen it. Just like, you know, the fall's coming on, it's getting a little cooler at night. That's what we're simulating. I mean, you touched on something just now, um, or just here a little bit ago, that, I mean, there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of experiments, and uh, we have our crop steering guide that we, we've kind of documented what we see has been working and what we, um, in, in our own grows and just from experience um, through science. But because this is a, such a new legal industry, I would say that there just isn't much, like, there's not uh, many publications out there on exactly what to do necessarily for each strain or for the crop as a whole as a generic strain or as a generic crop. Um, so that is something that we're doing. That is something because, I mean, Meter Group, who, who built Arroya, I mean, we're a company founded in research. So some of the research that we do conduct right now with universities out there, um, uh, like with Bruce Bugby, for instance, is just finding out exactly what does certain strains want Mm -hmm. And more importantly, why? Like, we know that this stuff works. We can tell you that this stuff works, and we should do this, and we should do that, but why? And that's an interesting question, because the cannabis crop, as a, as a generic crop, is certainly very, very different than what we've seen in other crops. Things that you would never do um, in a tomato plant, you can do with advantage in cannabis. Um, stress the H out of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and yeah, we're and, not splitting any fruits. Yeah, <laughs> the most important thing though is that you, no matter what the right answer is, the only way to know if you're doing it is measuring. And I mean, that's that's what I love with the system because by having the right sensors in and being able to understand what the crop is is how the crop is responding and what the crop is experiencing um, throughout all of those nine cardinal parameters, that that's really the that that's the that's the base that's the ground like that's that's what needs to happen for us to be able to do any change yeah absolutely i mean <clears throat> when we look at other crops like right here where we live on the palouse there's over 100 years of wheat breeding efforts yeah you know and research to go with that that says okay we put this type of fertilizer on x amount per acre this is what we can expect to see in tissue analysis for these different varieties and so when you look around for information out there it's actually kind of tough because uh, there, there's a lot of liability in just saying, go do this with your crop and this is what will happen. And we don't have, you know, that huge stack of a hundred years of studies on cannabis. So I know exactly. We, we yeah. have to, we have to make this as we go kind of measure and try to make the best predictive choices we can. And there's one example out there that has been brought up in, uh, in our discussions, um, recently. And, uh, it's, um, I don't know if, if Scott brought this up when he was a guest on this, on this, uh, talk, but it's uh, corn. And he will butcher me for getting the facts wrong. But basically, 60 years ago, the yields in corn were yay big, you know, down here. And it was pretty average year over year. But then at some point, call it 50, 60 years ago, 
mm-hmm. the research got to a point where the yields just started skyrocketing. So nowadays you produce, may I guess, I mean, he's going to butcher me, but I think it's between four and six times the amount of uh, biomass or the amount of product per square meter than what it was back then. And that's just mm-hmm. because research caught up and you, you did the right things just to increase your yields without having to increase your overall acreage. And that's really what we're seeing in cannabis too. People are starting yep. to understand what to do. Um, more research is being done. People are starting measuring what's happening in the root zone. They're doing crop steering, if you will, or basic environmental control. And and that that thing that took 60 years in, 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 uh, in corn, you can bet that that's going to take six times less, 10 yeah. years to yeah. see the same results in cannabis because you've already seen the yields and the quality go up like crazy. Yep, and we're, we're getting to the point too where uh, you know genetics can finally catch up as well. Yep. We've got it's genetic exactly. potential and environmental potential and the genetic potential side has been largely ignored in the cannabis community because you know certain, in order to research genetics, we've got to go through generations after generations. Yep. We've got to pull apart traits and you know to find that perfect combination especially when we're talking about recombination, we might be looking for one plant in 10,000 mm-hmm. in a single cross. Like I might be taking 200 plants, fully seeding them out and then working through that stock over the next few years right. or, you know, synthetic breeding where we're just open pollinating in a room for four generations. And then, like I said, we got a hundred thousand plants. That's a lot to go look through, but that's what we've done for a hundred years with other crops. And we just haven't been able to do it with cannabis, but now We've got so much money and excitement around it. The development, the development is just staggering. Like it's so cool to watch. Yeah, talk about strains um, before we get on to it with the next question. Is I'm super curious about you guys out there. If you are able to um, sustain your genetics, if you will. I mean, what I'm talking about is when you buy a Carlsberg, a beer, whatever Heineken, you know that's going to taste the same here as it does in Sweden. You know, it doesn't matter where you buy it; it's the same stuff. It's going to be. You can count on that tasting the exact same thing. If you buy um, wedding cake here and you buy it somewhere else, it's going to be the same. If you have two dispensaries or two um, facilities, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, are you making the same product? Can the customer come and buy the same product twice? I don't know. I've heard different things. I'm super curious what people are, are achieving. Uh, you know, I, that's a good point, Phil. I think it's, it's a little bit all over the place for a few reasons. Um, you know, number one right now, the legal protections for cannabis varieties and mm. cultivars, not the same. Yep. So the uh, other than private contract, you don't have a guarantee that what you're getting is what anyone says it is. Mm. And, uh, you know, the other side of it is unless you're using something like Arroyo in a pretty comprehensive control system, it's really hard to replicate an environment that tightly. Replicate results, yeah. Yeah, just because, you know, if I'm in a, a brand new warehouse in Southern California versus a retrofitted brick factory building sure. outside of Boston... I've got different challenges that I'm looking at, you know, yeah. just, like from, just from climate. Exactly. And, and building materials, you know, if I'm starting with a hundred year old building, that's got posts here and, you know, a lot of, and, and that's another cool thing about the cannabis industry is actually a lot of growers have been, you know, kind of uh, renewing certain neighborhoods and buildings that because they were affordable, they went into, but now it's like, well, it's kind of turning around neighborhoods, which is pretty neat to see. Yeah, no, it is. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a fast growing industry. Yeah, there's so many reasons to be super psyched to be in this industry right now. And uh, yeah, that was great. Um, Bilbo Baggins, did that answer your question? Uh, He did actually follow up uh, with a little bit of clarification. Uh, So what are some reasons that a substrate will not hit 70%? 
I'm using the Solus Terrace 12 to monitor. Um, that's just largely due to substrate properties, like with cocoa, how fine is the chop? What does the rest of the batch look, by, look like? There's a lot of variability there. And one thing to remember is like when you've got a plant that's rooting in, you know, we're looking for a pretty good balance of, you know, basically pore space and space occupied by the media in the pot. Those roots don't really fill in the solid portion of that. They fill in the pore space. So no matter what, as your plant's rooting in harder and harder over that growth cycle, mm. you should expect to see your field capacity or peak water content come down slowly over time. And that's just because there's not as much room in the pot. There's roots. Right. You know, if you, if you go back and if any of you have grown in hard pots with cocoa, uh, a lot of times at the end of the run, you'll pull it out and there's like no cocoa left in the pot. It's almost all roots. And if you were able to monitor water content, um, when I was using hard pots, I didn't have these tools, but uh, if I could have, I would have seen that my water content dropped out pretty, pretty drastically. Right. And correct, there. and correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but I mean, getting into a hundred percent water content, what you're looking for really in any substrate is, um, fill capacity, right? Like exactly. you're filling up the substrate as much water as it can hold at any point in time. And once that uh, water cotton curve, if you will, or, or the graph starts to level off, you'll know that runoff is happening and you can't, yep. you're not going to achieve more. That doesn't mean that you're going to read 100% because of reasons that Seth uh, just mentioned. Another thing to think about is a lot of people are uh, using spot measurements just as a, as a, as a best practice and uh, never, ever, ever, ever use the same holes in the substrate. So if you use a rock wool, uh, for instance, Rockwell Cube or a slab or something like that, don't put in your sensor one day and then go back the next day and put in the same in the same holes. Why is that important? Well, basically because you've already deformed the, the substrate at that point. Channeling is happening. Water is not going to, it's not going to be representative the second day as it was the first. So that would yeah. best practice. Can I ask you real quick, Bilbo Baggins, what, what kind of media are you in? That, that'll help clear up some things for me trying to answer it. Maybe he can't hear us. Um, okay. So he did follow up with some clarification too. I can't break 39% water content. Um, I feed 6% in P1 and 2% in P2. Is that helpful? Yeah, a little bit. Like I said, it depends on what kind of media you're using. If you've got like a cocoa perlite mix, 39% um, would be not surprising at all to see. Um, it just highly depends. Even some straight cocoa mixes, ones that have more of a husk chop to them, they look more like bark chips in there. Mm -hmm. they do not hold as much water. So basically when we're looking at volumetric water content in a specific medium, you want to be in the habit basically of every time you hydrate a new batch of media for transplant, fill it to field capacity. And then where you've got runoff is, uh, where, uh, where your field capacity is. You're not going to get it higher. If you get runoff at 39 and then you wait an hour and try it again and still get runoff at 39, that's what that media holds. Great. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Oh man, we still have a lot of questions. Um, I do want to get to Kyle's real quick too. Um, so Kyle asked, I have a question related to lights off. Do you have any tips on mitigating the massive uh, relative humidity swing uh, I see during the first few hours of lights off? There's a couple ways to go about that. Um, it depends on which HVAC genius you ask and what, what equipment you have on site basically. Um, if you're in a really hot environment, we can, you know, take advantage of your ACs that are already running to pull out some of that, that humidity. 
a lot of times, uh, based on initial calculations, people were generally under dehumidified in their rooms, you know? Mm. So, right. It's a dehumidifier. You would need to, to, yep. uh, to deal with that. Yep. Just up that capacity. Just thinking outside the box. I mean, we just talked about this a little bit ago, how, when you turn the lights off, it will drop because the temperature drops. Yep. Uh, do you ever see people try to maintain the temperature? Absolutely. So like if we're looking at, say, continuous harvest facilities that have plants from just transplanted yesterday to being harvested today, all in mm-hmm. the same room, uh, we it, it's all a game of compromises at that point. We can't run that super low VPD because the finishing plants can't take that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't run super low temps because the early plants won't, that'll stunt their growth too much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's actually a common, common solution to that problem, really. Like if we were talking and you're at the you know, last three weeks of a run and you just can't get that humidity under control, your options usually are, you know, especially if you're depending on your room size, a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of people, if you've got the license space and square footage, you don't really have a lot of room to work in there once plants are in. So you can either roll in on a cart or a gra- on the rolling dehu, roll one in, try to get through, you know, have it on a timer to kick off a half mm-hmm. hour before lights turn off, try to get through. And then the next move is after that round, install more dehumidifiers Mm -hmm. and decide, all right, are we really going to, or make the choice. Are we going to spend more money right now to chase those lower temps? Or are we just going to rate, you know, sometimes all it takes is going from 68 to 72 Mm -hmm. and that'll solve your VPD problem. So it's kind of making that call. And then, you know, with the latest purple trend um, or rage, I guess I would say rage and demand. I don't know. That seems to be the thing right now. But one thing to remember is, you know, you can get a lot of strains to purple up, but if you're having trouble controlling a lot of factors in your facility, you might be better off going for something more like a jealousy or a purple punch that purples up really easily on its own. Hmm. You know, if you find plants that you've grown that literally have purple sap Hmm. (laughs) before you've run your temperature differential, that's going to be the kind of thing you're looking for because, you know, is it worth it to possibly reduce some yields to push this purple? I don't think so. Mm. You know, and, and maybe I'm old school. I come out of plant breeding, so that's solved a lot of problems <laughs> in agriculture. And I yeah. see that's that's going to happen with cannabis soon, soon as well. What do you think? Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great question, you guys. Yeah. Awesome. We're going to keep tearing through some of these that we got. Um, so on Instagram, uh, Mousa Magic. Um, he has a question about um, plant trimming. So how does data affect your pruning schedule and how you coordinate plant trimming? So there's a few things to look at. Um, number one, if you're doing your correct crop registration, you're going to be mo- monitoring your plant height. Mm-hmm. Ideally every day, every other day during stretch. Because what we want to determine is the exact day that a specific strain stops stretching given our conditions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that also isn't identical for the same strain in two facilities. Sure. You know, if we talk about different nitrogen concentrations and stuff like that, that can affect how long stretch actually happens. But if we're monitoring that plant height, that's going to tell us a few things. One, that's going to be a cue to switch from generative to bulking when that plant stops growing. The other thing is that's also a sign that's a good time to do that second defoliation. And then the other side of it is using, as Phil mentioned earlier, our PV panels on the noses we're actually looking at leaf area index. So we can watch how quickly certain strains fill in and say, okay, you know, we, we can actually quantify better than just sticking our hand under the canopy and seeing mm-hmm. how bright it looks, how quickly those plants are filling out. And is that something we want? Right. Do we notice that, you know, with this extremely low level of light down there, we 
see lower quality yields or lower yields, or do we see higher yields? We're wasting less light at that point. Right. That's, that's how we can start to make those choices. And basically what that would be, I mean, what that, um, if you're not using that, uh, or know how to do that, it's basically your noses, Yep. your noses where your Teros 12 sensors are connected to, they sit underneath the crop. They measure the light coming through the canopy as the canopy grows in, it will receive less light and you'll see a drop in the curve in the data. Um, so, it, so just look at your light readings really for that. I do have a follow-up question on that though, because I mean a lot of uh, pruning or uh, trimming, um, yeah, it's extremely laborsome, right? Mm-hmm. And I definitely see how you need to do it, especially um, for instance, when you go from, um, from um, stressing the plants to bulking. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you have to do it many more times than that? Uh, you know, it's, it's very strain dependent, but typically, yeah, you know, anytime we have to touch the plant, we're spending money on labor. Sure. And then also you're stalling out growth slightly. The plant does respond mm-hmm. to every defoliation you can do. I mean, you can watch it on the graph that you defoliate one day, the plant dries back less the next. Mm-hmm. That's generally what's going to happen. So, you know, you want to minimize that really. And then another thing to consider, you know, once you get into bulking and even into ripening, each leaf that you have, you know, if it's a fan leaf attached to a knuckle that has no, uh, no bud right there, mm. that might be one you'll look at taking later on, mm. you know, at that 38 to 43 day mark. But, you know, I, I know years ago, some of the uh, prevailing theories were like continually stripping leaves, you know. Mm. Well, each of those non-bud leaves has 90% more photosynthetic capacity than the leaf growing out of a bud or like the little sugar leaves, mm-hmm. as they're called. So if, let's say... In week six, you pull that bud from that, or that leaf from that bud, you just took its food. Right. And also you produced a hormonal response at that site of injury that's going to encourage that bud to actually try to grow more leaves because it wants sugar. (laughs) Right. Right. So really we want to minimize it as much as possible. And one interesting thing that I've run into that I never thought I would was uh, trying to help people find that balance between going really hard early to produce premium, you know, top quality nug and uh, maintaining like, hey, we want a third of our weight to be smalls. We want mm-hmm. it to be B nugs because the pre-roll market's so huge. So mm-hmm. it's really been interesting to uh, see, you know, not only is there like what us as growers want to see as ideal, which is really quality product, but then there's uh, the market demands. You know, some people are finding that those pre-rolls are like such a huge part of their sales that they can't not produce them, even if they have to dip into their better nug. Yeah. And that, you know, five years ago, was kind of more like, well, this is a solution for our B quality stuff that we don't want to put in jars. Crazy thought. But do you ever see clients that you work with that um, at one go use two different pruning techniques? Half, half. Uh, yeah, I see people that experiment a lot with it. Okay. And, uh, you know, part of that, is, like I said, is really them trying to find that balance with what works in their facility. And then and for that strain, for that strain, but also with marketing Sure. <laughs> at the end of the day, because then there's, you know, are, you know, are we trying to go top quality, bud? are we just doing an oil run? Because mm-hmm. that's a whole thing, too. We've got people that only grow for oil. So yep. if we're doing that. We're going very minimal on the defoliation. Right. Um, yeah, that's the, the big thing is, you know, just keeping your mind like every time you do, every time you cut the plant, mm-hmm. you're stalling it out and fighting it. And we have a short amount of time to produce with that plant. So right. we want to minimize those injury events. So important to know this stuff while you're growing so you don't mess it up. Awesome, you guys. We do have a couple more questions and I'm going to go as quickly as we can through these. <clears throat> Baby Got Dryback's wrote in 
Tell me about the evolution of cannabis production technology and software, and how is Arroyo different? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, from what I'd seen, you know, um, right when, you know, the medical market and the recreational market came online, we had companies like GrowFlow, mm-hmm. uh, CanX, LeafLogix, we can go on and on, mm-hmm. um, that were more focused on the compliance and logistics side of the, the industry. So what they were looking at is like, all right, here's a software that can help your business because you have to do this registration. So we can help you with that. And then, you know, organize your inventory basically. And Arroyo, and, and we're not the only company doing that, but we are probably the people that are best combining this uh, operational software with the technology side. I think that's a good point. I mean, a lot of what I've seen out there, um, systems that people can use really focus on that um, harvesting or post-harvest processing, just being able to report to um, to the state of what's happening. You know, they have scales, they help you with the harvest flow perhaps. Um, but it's really focused on keeping track of your inventory and keeping track of what you're doing to then report that. I uh, would say that where Arroyo is a little bit different is that um, uh, Media Group, who made Arroyo, has been around for 40 plus years. We're a company based in research. We did not start out with a company wanting to serve the cannabis market. No, we started out as a company building sensors and instrumentation for um, for other businesses and for anyone really to use uh, who's doing any type of, um, uh, growing any type of crop uh, on the environment side, like soil moisture sensors, climate stations, you name it, things like that. But then we also have our food side of the company that makes water activity instruments. Um, again, not, I, not necessarily to begin with for cannabis, but for food, shelf-stable products where you have to measure water activity. Uh, to meet uh, legal demands. So that's kind of our foundation. Now, we saw seven years ago, or maybe six or or seven years ago, that cannabis was not becoming market. So we decided to, hey, how can we adopt our sensor technology and instrumentation, add a layer of software onto that, and really make a custom-made product for cannabis growers to have them succeed with what we're trying to do. That's how we started out with Roya. So you see these businesses out there or these solutions out there that help you with compliance. We do that too, but we take it a step further. Like for instance, with post harvesting and and post harvesting um, and drying, not only do we help you um, report to the state what you did, but we also help you with our water activity instrumentation, being able to tell you when the product is dried, uh, when it's done so that you're not over drying the product or worse, uh, under drying it um, just for mold issues. Um, so we really help you, um, keep, keep that value with the product throughout the entire process. Cause, um, you don't want to grow the plant all, like in the ultimate way just to dry it away. Right. So, um, that's that on the dry side, but then also on the sensor side, we have those sensors that we developed over, over the course of decades. And now we've optimized them, if you will, for the cannabis industry specifically. Yeah. And, you know, it's just bringing together all these different facets that we're lucky enough to have access to. Right. We talk about the technology. And then as we got into it, you know, we were fortunate enough to look at or be able to look at other companies with compliance and management software that had existed before and then talk to growers over time and find out that like a lot of these people are managing, you know, not only a horticultural operation, but also the business side of it. Yeah. So they're trying to avoid having 10 different softwares that they use. So we're trying to get task management, compliance, 
and then all of your sensor data into one place. You know, traditionally, uh, before Array existed, there were some other, you know, environmental monitoring uh, softwares out there and hardware. Mm -hmm. But usually what that looked like is going to the office and one computer screen has a graph that's got humidity and temperature on it. Right. And maybe maybe you have <laughs> VPD or soil moisture, but sure. you have that and then you have your computer that's got Slack or when I work or we'll start naming, you know, yeah. different management softwares. And suddenly everyone on sites using like five programs on their phone just to get through their work day. And a lot of them don't, you know, some of them don't have a complicated job. It's just kind of, it's kind of silly if you just, if all you do is irrigate to have five softwares that you have to use to communicate with all of your coworkers. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the second part of your question, how has it been evolving? It's definitely been evolving and adoption has, has increased. There's not, there's still, I would say the majority of cannabis producers in the country are not measuring. They're not using a system like Arroyo. They are using systems. They're using Google Sheets. They're using uh, pen and paper. They use whatever they can find or whatever they find suitable, Asana, for instance, for task management. But uh, a lot of growers just aren't measuring yet. If you look at other industries uh, like tomatoes or crops that you would grow in, in Europe, for instance, having sensors is something that's been used for, for a very, very long time. And we definitely see that being the trend in cannabis as well. Even more so, the companies that are using sensors um, and measuring your cardinal parameters are get, seeing greater results because you're trying to scale your business. You're trying to increase your square footage, at which point it become, becomes difficult to handle that size mm -hmm. and really um, keeping consistency, uh, consistency throughout. Um, but also to, to keep up with the demand, you know, product and um, the growing principles are getting more, um, are evolving. So in able to keep up and produce the amount of yields and quality that people are producing nowadays, uh, the people that keep up with technology, they're going to stay ahead. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of producers out there can vouch and I mean, I'm sure you got, not everyone's experienced this, hopefully, but plenty have where yeah. you lose a crop or a significant part of it and you can't meet, you know, your order demands right. that you've put in. Well, a lot of those dispensaries don't want to buy from you again in the future because they want to be stocked a few months ahead of time and know that they're going to have product on their shelves. And if you're going to leave an open spot on their shelf, they don't want to buy from you anymore. So that's very important. And then, you know, going back to honestly in evolution or evolving of the product, we're really evolving the consistency that this is how you're going to be able to grow, uh, you know, a meat breath in Michigan in its homeland and grow it the same out here in Washington and actually yeah. have the same product on the shelf. And with that water activity, keeping it consistent, Yep. you know, that's, that's a huge part of it. Like we're really helping people solve the black ash problem <laughs> just right. by not under drying specifically. I, I do have one more uh, thought on that question, Maddie, because you, you asked uh, what makes us different. And I mean, I'm companies out there, solutions out there. There are a lot of awesome solutions out there. But what I love with working for this specific uh, company and for Arroya is just the passion. I mean, this is a passionate market and we are passionate about what we're doing. We have a full... Um, full team of scientists on staff just working with evolving our product. Yes, Arroyo is a cannabis-specific product, but what we're doing with all of the technology that we're fortunate enough to evolve and develop can really be distributed not only throughout the cannabis market and help everyone be successful, but uh, in broader horticulture. Like we want to attack all of indoor horticulture, greenhouses included, um, and provide a solution long-term that helps anyone improve their um, 
um, their performance, not just to improve yields, but to solve issues like uh, lack of water. You know, you don't want to waste water. You want to uh, improve your irrigation schedules. So we want to help every, all kinds of indoor and greenhouse um, crops to really be grown uh, in the ultimate way. That, that's, that's, our, that's our goal. And at the end of the day, anyone who uses precision drip irrigation, really. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and that's something that's actually really cool. You know, for years, uh, I feel like the cannabis growers around the world really wanted to be part of regular agriculture and have access to this stuff. Yeah. And now uh, that market explosion is actually driving it the other way where they're kind of they're paying the money to develop all this stuff. And greater agriculture is going to reap a little bit of benefit out of it, too. Absolutely. It's, it's, like, really it's, a give, it's a give and take, you know, like cannabis industry has really been able to benefit from all the research that's been done. But oh, now yeah. it's the opposite. Cannabis is, is adopting all of that and then they're evolving it even more. They're doing things like things that um, like typical crop would not invest in today because they've done yep. things the way it's been doing done forever and it works. Mm-hmm. But now they can follow the cannabis industry at some point. Yep. And, you know, compared to, let's say, growing spinach or strawberries, um, mm-hmm. we're not looking at nearly as long of a time, hopefully, to pay off our investment. So actually, like a lot of cannabis growers are taking a lot more chances out there in search of, you know, actually doing their own research and pushing those yields. And that's something that's really hard to do on a regular production farm. It is, which you drives know? it back to the passion. I mean, we're passionate. And for any cannabis grower fighting in this industry and being part of the community, you need to have passion. I mean, this is not a crop at the moment where you can just set it and let it grow. Like you really need no. to attend to this, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, <laughs> the harvest off of two lights is worth more than two acres of wheat yeah. around here quite yeah, potentially. It's so it's like there's uh, and yes, there's a lot more inputs going into that little two lights. But like I said, I, that, it blows my mind and I'm really thankful that we get to work with so many people that want to push it and aren't, like you said, kind of stuck in the old way, just staying with what works getting by on small margins. I mean, it's, it's a good combination of farmers and uh, entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our customers is the reason why Roy exists. Beautiful. We do have a couple questions that came in through the chat. Um, Trevor, do you want to take yourself off mute and ask it, or I can ask for you? I can go ahead. Okay, so Trevor asks, if you're stuck in a substrate size that's too small for your plants, mm-hmm. so it's very challenging to keep the plants from over drying at night, what irrigation strategy would you suggest to counter this mistake? Uh, he also says, we will upgrade, uh, upgrade our pot size next run. We've been watering heavy at P2, um, 6% shots an hour before lights out. So, I mean, the best you can do is one to two hours before lights out, bring it back up to field capacity or just like one or 2% below. So we're not pushing any extra runoff. But if we're talking about ripening, that little bit of extra runoff is often okay. As long as our, you know, our EC isn't bottoming out. But uh, for now, you're just going to have to run with that. Uh, Hopefully you don't have to put on a P3. Another thing you can do is instead of two hours after lights on watering, move that back to an hour or when lights turn on. But Unfortunately, you're just going to have to keep your plants from wilting for this last two to three weeks. Mm. And then, yes, up your pot size for the next run or cut your plant size in half. Up your pot size. I mean, considering you said pot, I assume it's not rock wool. So, I mean, you can definitely increase your pot size and your subject volume. You don't want to do that too much, though, because you no. still want to stress the plants and be able to achieve a, a good size dry back. So, um, you know, you want to take a look at that. I mean, for a, for a normal cannabis plant, I don't know. But if you're going above two gallons, 
that's going out of easily steerable. I was about to say like two gallons is probably the max you want to go. If you're using rock wool, I mean, you can definitely use a six by six by six block. The most common thing that we see in flour is that you use a four by four, a cube, four by four by four, and then putting that on a slab or a, or a uni slab. Because that, what that will allow you to do is really maintain um, uh, a water content to, to ensure that you don't go below, you know, 20, 25%. But still, you can still drive it pretty hard and, and, and dry, dry it back uh, fairly significantly and, and, and increase that stress. Yeah, and, you know, a bit, that's been another big thing, uh, transitioning over, you know, or watching people transition from, let's say, the medical market to the rec market. Mm. Um, you know, traditionally a big problem was plant counts. Mm-hmm. Like uh, 10 years ago, let's say we're in Northern California and I've got a license for 99 plants and you've got a license for 99 plants. That's still not very many plants, you know, at the end of the day. So plant size becomes really important. We want big, big yielding plants. Yeah. Well, if we're out growing our pots and we're not under a plant count license, we can grow plants half the size in those smaller pots. If, you know, like, you know, you mentioned the Hugos, the six by six by sixes, those are something that people tend to overgrow a lot. They'll grow way too big of a plant in it and end up right in the situation where they can't keep it wet at the end. You got a few options, you know. If you've got a shipping container full of those sitting outside already <laughs> and you want to use them, uh, you know, you're best off buying slabs. The other yeah. option is flip smaller plants. Instead yep. of flipping your plants at 16, 18 inches high, we might be flipping them at 10, 10 or 12. Yeah. And, you know, going a third or double, a third more or maybe double our plant density. Yeah. To compensate. It's it's really about tuning your plant size for your environment. And one thing that is definitely prevalent in cannabis production is people tend to outgrow their environment pretty quick as they get proficient at dialing it in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know. Sure. Um, and he did follow up. Um, gotcha. No wilting, just optimal drybacks in POCO. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll add some P2, uh, some more P2 waterings to hit maximum capacity. Yep. That's that's all you can do for now. And just be patient. Don't freak out in the middle of the day and just start slamming it with water. You can let it dry back between the end of P1. It's a pretty hardy plant. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, it's a pretty hardy plant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I mean, uh, that's something I've been dealing with all the time lately. It's kind of funny. People switch to LEDs thinking they're going to save power, but yeah. they just grow more cannabis. Yeah, they grow more cannabis and then they get, you know, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, then they got to spend more money on I mean, the beautiful thing is that, you, I mean, the problem is solvable and you can definitely deal with it. Uh, there's way to, ways to deal with it. Um, do small things, you know, like you don't want to change up too much too fast. Like it's, um, mm-hmm. that that's important. So, I mean, stay with the subject that you have and play with the volume. Uh, he also wanted to say, Arroyo uh, Arroya and LEDs got my plants bigger than I'm used to. Haha, that's awesome. We'd love to hear that. Yep. Um, uh, you know, we are getting so close to time. Um, we did have one more question in the chat, and I think that he did leave, but I do want to ask this if it's a short enough question. Um, Mikey Gersh wrote in. Oh, here he comes. <laughs> He's back. Uh, We'll just wait one second. This will be our last question of the day. Uh, hey, Michael, we did want to ask your question. We're so glad that you're back. Um, if you want to take yourself off mute and ask it, um, you're more than welcome to, or I can ask it. I got you. All right. How many days before harvest would you recommend a switch to generative watering? Usually about two weeks, but that's strain dependent. Some strains, if you run too long in the bulking phase, will start to stretch out and kind of have loose, leafy bud. So for some of those strands that like a longer ripening, three weeks, but generally we look at two weeks for a ripening period. 
Awesome. Uh, Michael, did that answer your question? I hope that it did. Man, this was a great show. He says yes. Awesome. Great. Well, you know, guys, we're coming up on time. Uh, I think this was an amazing show. Man, we had a lot of really great questions and answers come out of this one. Um, so, yeah. Um, Kyle, Trevor, please stick around for a minute. Um, I think that I got some of your uh, info, but we do want to send you guys a new Arroyo hat. Um, so thank you all for joining us this week for Arroyo's Office Hours Live. If you have any questions about Arroyo and how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like covered in the future on Office Hours, please post it in the chat, shoot us an email at support.arroyo.metergroup.com or send us an Instagram DM. We would love to hear from any of you guys. Um, we also record this every session and we'll be emailing you guys, uh, everyone who is in attendance, a link to this video. Um, it'll also live on Arroyo's YouTube channel. And so we really encourage you guys to head on over there, like and subscribe so you guys never miss out on any of the sessions that we have. If you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share with your network and spread the word. Thank you guys so much and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Mandy, for hosting this. That's great. Yeah, thank you, guys. Great show. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Michael. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.